Welcome once again, everyone, to the official Jets podcast powered by Amazon Web Services in these very strange times. About the only way that we can spend some time with you is virtually, and that's what we're here to do today. Bob Wischusen, and as always, my partner, Marty Lyons. Um, you know, we'll talk some football. We'll talk about uh, hopefully something for the next 20, 25 minutes or so to take your mind off of what is going on in the world. And boy, do we want sports to return. Boy, do we want football to return. And Marty Lyons, you and I know are at the top of the list of wanting to get life back to normal and at some point in the not-too-distant future see Jet fans again in person. How you doing? I'm doing well, Bobby. I hope that we get back to football. I hope we get back to some sort of normal world. And, uh, you know, we still want to give a shout-out to all those frontliners working to protect us, the doctors, the nurses, the volunteers, and also a special, uh, you know, Thoughts and prayers have to go out to Woody and Chris Johnson. They just lost their mother, who was 99. And Mrs. Johnson was just a sweetheart of a lady. And I think Curtis Martin or Chad Pennington said it earlier this week that she was the first lady of the Jets. So uh, I know you and I enjoyed our visit with her on the sidelines. She was like a mother to us. And, you know, the days that we were out there and it was cold, she'd always look at me and say, you know, Marty, you got to have a hat on. So she'll be dearly missed by all, but our thoughts and prayers are with the Johnson family. Yeah, Curtis put it perfectly. I mean, what an amazing life that she lived. I remember talking to Christopher about a year, year and a half ago, and I asked, you know, how's she doing? And he said, well, she fell. And I said, well, how did she fall? And he said, well, she was like trying to get a dish off of like the top shelf of the kitchen cabinet. And I said, isn't she? like 90 something years old. And he was like, yeah, I mean, but that's, that was her. She, I'm, I'm, no, I don't want you to go get that dish for me. I'll get it. I'm good. I'm a, you know, so you're right. I mean, she, she lived an amazing life, um, but really had the spunk inside of her, like that spirit inside of her uh, that allowed her to live as long as she did. And uh, you're right. She was a true mom, I think to many more than just her blood relatives in the jet organization. Yeah, she really was. And to live a life to 99, you know, you know, if somebody slid a piece of paper in front of me right now and said, hey, you know what, you can live a normal, healthy life and be around your family till you're 99. You know what? I'm signing that piece of paper right now, Bob. (laughs) You're exactly right. So, yeah, um, all of our good thoughts and prayers to uh, to all of the friends and, of course, the family um, of, of Woody and Christopher Johnson, um, because that was sad news. That's a loss for the whole organization. Uh, there's no question. Um, but the Jets, obviously, Marty, in the draft, gained and gained in a big way, literally and physically. You know, uh, we we were, I think, talking, heading up towards the draft the last time we did. Uh, one of these podcasts kind of during free agency that Joe Douglas made a very clear statement when he first got the job that he's an old offensive lineman and he was going to go out there and he was going to address the jet offensive line. And boy, has he ever addressed the jet offensive line. What what were your thoughts when you found out that uh, on draft night that Makai Becton was going to be a jet? Well, you know what, when you look at him, Bob, it's six, seven, 365 pounds and, you know, he ran a, a 5-140 at the Combine. He's a big man. And he's got uh, he's got the body. He's got the athletic tools. What worries me now is that 
with the coronavirus, a lot of these players aren't allowed to come into the facility that the Jets have. So what are they doing on their own? How are they preparing? Are they in the playbook? Or are they going to be ready to build that chemistry? Because you and I both know you can plug in the greatest athletes up front in that front five of the offensive line. But if they don't build the chemistry and they don't build the trust, uh, come game time, it's going to show. So I think it's very important for the players to take on the accountability this year to say, hey, the day that I walk into camp is the day I'm ready to put on the pads. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Covering football all these years, there's one constant regard college, pro, you know, when you see a team, you hang out at the facility, you might see a linebacker and a safety walking down the hallway together. You might see a wide receiver and a quarterback, or you might see a defensive back and a tight end. The, the guys that you always seem to see together are the offensive linemen. They really do just operate as a unit. And, and I guess my question would be, if you were the offensive line coach, how would you coach an offensive line virtually? Like, What can those guys do to, when they come into camp on day one, have some synchronicity? Because they really do all need to move at exactly the same time with a rhythm and feed off of each other. And, you know, it's just it's a totally different job description because of how they all have to operate as one than probably any other position in football. Well, I think it, it starts with the center and McGovern has to be ready to make the calls to the offensive line. If I was coaching them right now, Bob, I would put up all the different fronts that they may see throughout the year and call a play. And say, okay, who are you responsible to block? Who's gonna who's gonna do what? And go from there. Make sure that they number one is that they know their assignments. And number two, how they're gonna coordinate back and forth and communicate back and forth with the guy next to them. Um, I think that's the only thing that you can do is trying to, you know, communicate. Get them to know the playbook. It's hard to know somebody if you haven't played with them. Uh, the personality of all the players are going to definitely be different. There's going to be some with stronger personalities that, you know, are going to be the leaders, the alpha males of the offensive line. There's some that are, are not going to be vocal. Uh, what they have to do is find their role and uh, realize that they have to have an expertise at their role and go out there and execute it. Yeah, back to Becton for a second. Who's the biggest dude physically that you ever had to go up against as a defensive lineman? Like, I, I mean, I well, can't. I tell you who he reminds me of, and, and, and I hope you he, Yeah, you know what, Bob? Who he reminds me of? He reminds me of Jonathan Ogden for the yeah. Baltimore Ravens. That was one big human being. I never played against <laughs> him, but I watched him play for so many years. And, you know, he had the. He had, the mobility to get outside to block that, you know, if you had a speed rusher, he could open up those hips and get out there. Um, I think one of the biggest guys that I played against, maybe like an arch shell um, for the Oakland Raiders. Uh, but back then, you know, we didn't have many 300 pounders on the, that we were playing against. Right. Maybe 290, 300 pounds at the most. This guy's 365 pounds. That's a big man. Yeah, I remember the, the Jimmy Johnson Cowboys in the early 90s, I want to say, was the first time in the NFL 
that all five starters on an offensive line were over 300 pounds, right? Like now it's just accepted that you're going to be at least 320, 325 pounds and an athlete to be able to play in the NFL. This guy's 40 pounds bigger than that. And yeah, also he's first- very athletic. When I first came in the league, Bob, I was undersized. I started at 248 pounds, and then my top weight was when I moved inside the defensive tackle, I played at no heavier than 270, really 268. And, you know, now if you're 268, you're an outside linebacker, an inside linebacker. You know, that doesn't fly anymore. We'd have to figure out if you could go cover somebody now in order to play in the NFL. <laughs> you know what? I might have been able to cover back 40 years ago, but, I, you know, it's hard for me to cover anything except a plate of food when I go have to get up and get something to drink. Yeah, well, you cover that well. We've all seen it. Bob Shuzan and Marty Lyons here on the official Jets podcast powered by Amazon Web Services. You know, and it is funny to think about it now. If you count Alex Lewis as a new player, now granted the Jets brought him in last season, but he was a Joe Douglas new acquisition. The five guys that will start in front of Sam Darnold this year are five completely different guys than started in front of him on opening day last year. So the chemistry that's going to have to develop with that group and also with the quarterback, you know, they're going to have to spend some time with the and and the running backs. You know, they, they need to learn Le'Veon Bell. They need to learn Frank Gore. They need to learn LaMichael Pirine, the rookie. And that is a couple of very different running styles. If you think about how Frank Gore wants to run the football compared to how Le'Veon Bell wants to run the football, you know, the, the Jets, at least in terms of offensive line, combination with a third-year quarterback, combination with those running backs, they need time on the practice field to be ready to start this season. I don't think there's any question. Oh, I agree with you, Bob, but there's 31 other teams in the NFL that are probably saying the same thing. So, you know, there's going to be a built-in excuse once the season starts, whether, you know what, we didn't have time to prepare, we had to do this virtually, and, you know, there's that built-in excuse. But I think the Jets, they now have the personnel. You know, the AFC East this year, as hard as it looks like the schedule will be, and everybody's got to go out west a bunch. Everybody's got to play the NFC West, AFC West. You know, that's those are your, you know, your your out of division opponents. Everybody in this division is going to have a tough schedule this year. This might be one of those years where nine and seven is good enough to win this division. It, you know, there always seems to be at least one or two divisions that that are are that way in the NFL. That might be the AFC East this year. You know what, Bob, you might be right. Nine and seven might win the division. But and I think the first part of the season, you know, you play at Buffalo, you play at Indianapolis and you got San Francisco and you got Denver at home. You know, if there's no fans in in the stadium, you know, I don't know who has the advantage or the disadvantage, but it's a neutral field in my mind. Even as a road player, how hard would it be? Like, how much did you feed off of the crowd, even if they were booing you, right? Just the energy in the building. I'm sure you'd rather play in front of your home fans than the road fans, but playing in front of no fans, is there something about then having to, like, you know, kickstart yourself in a way that you normally wouldn't have to because the crowd energy, I'm sure, is something, even when it's rooting against you, that that spurs on an athlete? Oh, without a doubt, Bob. I mean, it, with no fans, you're going to go out there. You're going to depend on your teammates, your coaching staff, 
and everybody to get excited when a big play is made, uh, excited when you leave the locker room, because whether you're playing in front of your home crowd where you feed off that emotion, when you're at an away game and that emotion is against you, you still feed off of it. It still, you know, touches your soul and it makes you just want to play a little bit harder. But now there's nothing. There's dead silence except for what you're going to catch from the bench. I think it puts a a lot of pressure, uh, a lot of pressure on the players, a lot of pressure on the coaches to go out there and say, hey, guys, we've got to motivate ourselves. We don't have our fans. we got to motivate ourselves. Yeah, but if the game counts, I still have always thought that if you take an athlete and put him in a spot where he knows this counts, this is for real, and, you know, this is my season on the line, and that's the way it feels almost every week in the NFL. Like, you're you're going to have some emotion and some motivation. I just have to think sooner or later that competitive fire kicks in, even if it's in an empty building. Well, I, I think the competitive fire is going to burn, Bob. I think that's the accountability of the players. But you don't have anything. Let's say you start the fire and the fire starts to go down. How do you flame that? get the fire to flame back up? Normally, it's right. the crowd. Normally, it's somebody on the bench. Now, you know, it's, it's a whole different animal that, yeah, these games are going to uh, uh, count, but you have to motivate yourself in a different way. You're not going into – think about it. We're, we're going to go into Buffalo. You don't even have to worry about people throwing bottles at the, uh, the buses. There's nobody getting slammed on the table. It's really quiet when you go through the parking lot. That'll be a great sight up there in Buffalo. And I think it gives you a little bit of an advantage if you're the a visiting team rather than going to a full house Buffalo Bill Pack Stadium. Yeah, even for those of us that are broadcasters, just riding the bus on the way in, I'll really miss the crowd in Buffalo and the warm yeah. greeting that they seem to give us every year. Yeah, down there and also out there in Oakland, you know, all those places that uh, the fans are behind their team 100%. Uh, <laughs> it's it's going to be totally different. And I think that now the the accountability, again, that word's going to play a big part in everybody's lives if you're in professional sports. Yep. Hey, you know what? We talked a lot, obviously, about Mekhi Becton, the Jet offensive line, the fact that they've completely retooled it. But back to the draft for a second. Um, you know, another big factor in, I think, Joe Douglas's just overall concept of how he wanted to put the team together was to get younger, to get bigger, to try to address the offensive line, but also to get faster. And it seemed like in a lot of the other spots that he drafted after he took Becton, Denzel Mims at wide receiver, Ashton Davis, a little bit of a surprise pick at safety. The Jets have some depth at safety, but he's a different kind of safety. You know, what was your take after the Becton selection on the next three or four picks where it seemed like it really was a high priority for the Jets to get faster? Well, I think, too, Bob, if you look at Bryce Hall, who they picked in the fifth round out of Virginia, if he can stay healthy, I think he's going to be productive. I think he'll fit right in with Greg Williams' um, defense. And then also you got the punter coming in in the sixth round man out of Texas A&M. He was the the Ray Guy uh, award winner for college football last year. And the thing about having a punter is if your offense is struggling, 
and you have a punter that can kick it 60 yards and flip the field position, it helps your defense out tremendously. So Yeah, I agree. I, I really think that Joe Douglas did a great job. He didn't overbuy during free agency, overpay. He brought in the players that he thought uh, could help the team win. Yeah, and I mentioned leadership as well with Morgan. That was also a big theme in this draft for Joe, right? I mean, he it seemed like on day two, the number one bullet point that you saw, and day three as well, the number one bullet point you kept seeing coming up again right after every pick the Jets would make is he was a team captain. And he, he's, he really seems to value wanting to take this collective group of players. And I thought it was something Phil Savage said that was interesting, uh, one of the right-hand men for Joe Douglas in the Jets personnel department, who you know real well, um, that they weren't looking at these guys always just as individual talents. They were looking at collectively the whole group, how they form and help to form a team. And, and, and all being captains of their college teams means that they're bringing guys into the locker room that get the concept of team. They really do, Bob. I, I think when you're a team captain, I know that I was voted by my peers as a team captain, not appointed by Coach Bryant. And it meant so much that you had other guys in the locker room that were looking for you to have the leadership that they needed to go on and play. And that when you got up to speak in front of the group, whether you're now a rookie, you're a second, third year player, that the players are going to respect you. But the bottom line is they're going to respect you if you can go out and perform. You know, you have to perform. Otherwise, that leadership quality really doesn't have any meaning. You get back to Jamal Adams. He he can back up everything that he's doing out there on the field and more. And you got a guy like C.J. Mosley coming back after playing, what, five quarters last year? You know, these guys have all got to come in and, and stay healthy and go out there and perform at a high level for the Jets to be successful. You know, it's probably one of the only team, actual team sports. You know, basketball is a team sport, but baseball, you you know, they call it a team sport, but it, uh, to me, there's more individual performances in baseball than yeah. any other sports. You put a guy yeah. up the bat, he hits the ball, he runs first, second, or it's a home run. You know, Sam Darnold drops back to pass. You better have the pass protection. You better have yeah. the receiver running the right route. He better catch the ball. Everything has to click in the game of football. So, you know, all these guys have to come into camp and get to know one another, get to know the coaches, understand uh, that it is the NFL. It's going to be a very difficult year for everyone. And the team that comes out of it the best is a team that's going to understand that you know what, we're going to take all this, all the leadership qualities and combine it into one and have one common goal, and that's to win. You hey, know? Real quick, we got a few, uh, we got a couple of minutes left. Anything else from the draft surprise you? Like the Dolphins played a game of cat and mouse with everybody. Eventually they did what we all thought they were going to do. They took Tua. He will be their quarterback of the future. The top of the draft seemed to pretty much go as you would expect, maybe Andrew Thomas getting drafted by the Giants as high as he did raised a couple of eyebrows, but I think he's going to be a really good player. I think that was a good pick. Um, I don't know. Anything else that happened maybe in front of the Jets or, you know, certainly the one that, you know, Jordan Love being uh, being traded up for and and taken by the Packers with Aaron Rodgers still there seemed to be the, the, the first round move that grabbed most of the headlines. Anything else jump out to you? 
You know what, Bob? I think that the NFL did a great job uh, covering the NFL draft. I think Roger Goodell showed that he's just like you and I. The first night he was in a sport coat. The second night he was in a sweater. The third night he was just, you know, slumped down in a chair, you know, reading, reading everything. He had his jelly beans there. And I thought they did a great job of bringing the draft making it a little bit more personal, bringing it into everybody's uh, living room the way that they did it. So, um, you know, the players that were drafted, it's a new opportunity for them. It's a new challenge for them. All their lives have changed, you know, from going from a college player to now the NFL. And now they got to realize that to stay in the NFL, it's a job. You have to perform. There's no four-year scholarships anymore. You have to go out and you have to perform and you have to be consistent. And what the young guys are going to realize is that the NFL is a long season. It's not, you know, your 12 or 13 games in college. It's every week. And you're not going to be playing against guys that are in their fifth year. You're going to be playing against guys that are in their 10th, 11th, 12th year that uh, they know all the games, they know how to prepare. And as a rookie, you have to go in there. Uh, a guy like Quinnen Williams, he's got to come back. He's got one year underneath his belt. He should have learned a lot as a number one pick out of Alabama last year. Got beat up a little bit with injuries. I don't think if you asked him if he had the get- season that he really wanted to have, I think he ended it with two and a half or three sacks. I know he's better than that but he's got to come back with a different attitude and realize, hey, my sophomore year in the NFL, I know what it's about. Well, hopefully we'll all be able to come back sooner rather than later, partner. This is always fun. And, uh, you know, again, hopefully the Jets will let us do this again sometime soon. You got it, Bobby. You stay well. Tell Julie we're proud of her and uh, stay safe. I will do that. That's Marty Lyons. I'm Bob Wischusen. Jet fans, stay healthy and stay safe. And thanks for joining us on the official Jets podcast, Powered by Amazon Web Services.